Well, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? At least a thumbs up out there somewhere. Good. Uh, our goal for today is to talk about um, process-induced changes in the protein fractions of the given products based on the three scenarios that were posted on the D2L site. Um, so what we're gonna start with today is to work our way through the first scenario, which hopefully the folks who are normally in class on Monday had a little chance to think about and talk about so that we can come up with a way uh, of looking at what's happening to those proteins as we go through uh, the process. For those of you who did not find the um, piece of paper related to the process interactions, this product is a yogurt. It's a 2% milk fat, 14% solid, uh, total solids, fortified with non-fat dry milk yogurt. It's going to end up being strawberry yogurt there's details given about the process applied to the non-fat dry milk, about the pasteurizing process for the yogurt itself, the incubation process, the final pH, the quantity of strawberries added, and then there's a series of questions. So what I'd like us to do is to start a discussion led by the folks who are normally in the Monday class as to what you think is happening to the protein fractions at each of the processing steps. So um, if you have a thought, you know, chime in, you can turn your cameras on. You may have to mute and unmute your mics in order to keep feedback down, but we'll see how this goes. So does anyone from the Monday group want to give a starting thought about some of the things that might be occurring as we're making this yogurt? Is anybody out there at all? Um, so first we said that the hydrophobic interactions between alpha S caseins would grow stronger with the heat increase from pasteurization, which would cause the caseins to exclude water and other substances. But since it's thermal, thermally reversible as the milk is cooled again, the interactions wouldn't be as strong. Okay, does that, that make sense to everyone else out there? So did you think about what happened to the, the non-fat dry milk that you're adding to the yogurt? Does the way it's prepared make any difference? Any thoughts?
one thought would be the how well it's blended. Okay, so when we but add particles, particle size in, in in specific. As we add that nonfat, how does it get incorporated into the the milk to begin with, to make sure you've got even particle distribution, right? That's what you're saying. think so okay would the the heat in the dryer as we're making the non-fat have any impact on those proteins already in that skim milk that we're drying what do you think The answer is yes. So I gave you that part. Now why? We sell low heat powder and medium heat powder and high heat powder. What does that difference entail? Would it be a percentage of the proteins being denatured at each of those um, set points? Correct. So depending on whether you're worried about the denaturation of the serum protein fraction, you may choose to either use low heat, medium heat, or high heat powder as you're adding it to your other product. In this case, we used um, low heat powder which means they tried as much as possible to minimize denaturation of the serum proteins in the powder. If we'd used high heat powder, we'd already have some portion of our proteins denatured, whether we wanted them to be or not. That's sort of how you have to begin breaking down a scenario like this. So the low heat powder did not change dramatically the denaturation of the serum proteins and it certainly wouldn't impact the caseins. Why doesn't it impact caseins? Because they're already partially denatured or like they act as they're denatured? They act as they're, they're denatured, they're already open in structure because of the proline sequence. Therefore, we don't really see any impact of heat on the caseins, but certainly on the serum proteins. So the low heat powder should be minimally impacted as far as the serum proteins. When we're adding that, to the milk, how much would we need to add to get to a 14% total solids yogurt? Anyone's thought about that? Are we adding a lot, a little bit? What's the normal, um, 
solids, non-fat content in milk. Does anybody remember that? Don't get mad at me, Howard, but isn't it around 9 to 10%? It's pretty close to 9% almost all of the time. So if it's 9% solids, non-fat, and we've got 2% fat, we'd be at 11. So how much non-fat are we having to add to get to 14? 1% uh, of the total solids. Three. Three. 3%. So we've got nine plus two plus three gets to 14. So 3% of our total formula is this low heat, non-fat dry milk powder. That's what's been added. So in adding that 3%, what percent of protein do we add? That gets to Ethan's answer. We've got three times the 36% or just over 1% additional protein present to have some impact on as we're making yogurt. Does that make sense? Okay. No, so what were you saying? So you talked about we had to add 3% of the non-fat dry milk butter, but then when it says it contains that, that's where you're getting your protein from? Correct. So you needed to, to get to 14% total solids. To get there, we needed 3% solids added as non-fat. But of that non-fat, 36% is actually protein. So the three times the 36% is gonna get us something just over 1% additional protein added, even though we added 3% solids, because what we added mostly was lactose. Okay, thank you. Does that make sense? Yeah. So now we've got the non-fat added. Now we're gonna pasteurize this product. What are the pasteurization conditions that they're using? They're, they're planning to pasteurize at 188 degrees Fahrenheit for six minutes. Does that seem like a lot? Yes. Okay, so it's a fairly high temperature for what really looks like an excessively long amount of time. Why would you do that? Um, they are looking to denature with the proteins to make a thicker product. Exactly. So they're, they're looking to increase water binding capacity of the solids that they have. Which proteins are they denaturing? Are they denaturing the beta-lactoglobulins? Are they denaturing the alpha-lactalbumins? Are they denaturing the beta-caseins? Which proteins are actually being denatured? We talked about this in the last two days in lecture especially the serum proteins, which is more sensitive to heat? 
Wasn't it the alpha and beta lactoglobulins? Beta lactoglobulins, the alpha lactalbumins are the two primary serum proteins. One is more heat sensitive than the other. Which one's the most heat sensitive? In a beta-lactoglobulin? The beta-lactoglobulins. So at this temperature, for this amount of time, most of what you're denaturing is the beta-lactoglobulins. 188F, <clears throat> if you remember the slide for the alpha-lactalbumins, we said we had to be greater than 90 degrees C for greater than a half an hour to denature 50% of the alpha-lactalbumins. This would be less than 90 degrees C and certainly less than a half an hour. So almost, almost exclusively, all we're denaturing is the beta-lactoglobulins. So, so when you're writing up an answer, saying simply that we denature the proteins is not specific enough to say which one we're talking about. Does that make sense? But that's why we did this 188 for six minute pasteurizing. We want those beta-lactoglobulins to unravel so they'll bind more water, thicken up, and hopefully hold this finished yogurt together better. Does that make sense? So does the cooling down to 104, what does that have to do? Claire mentioned it in part. When we cooled it back down, does the interaction stay where it was or does it start to change again? Uh, changes again. So instead of excluding other substances, it becomes a more homogenous mixture. Okay. So we, instead of driving away everything, it, it starts to re-shrink, become more <clears throat> willing to do some other interactions along the way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. So now we're at 104 degrees. We've denatured virtually all of the beta-lactoglobulins that are present in our solids. Now we're going to go in and start the fermentation. What happens during a fermentation? Does the pH stay the same or does it change? Um, it does what? Like go down. It goes down. So as we go from a more neutral point around 6.6, 6.7, it says here we're going to finish at 3.85. So we've got a pH change in our solution. Does that pH change impact the serum proteins 
or the casein proteins? I believe it would be the serum proteins and would it affect uh, beta-lactoglobulin having more monomers? Some impact on the, on the monomer to dimer and the beta-lactoglobulin. But remember the caseins, do the caseins have an isoelectric point? Yeah. So what is the isoelectric point for the caseins? 4.6. Um, 4.6. So if we passed through 4.6 on our way from 6.6 .6 down to 3.85, what sort of reaction starts to occur with the casein proteins? Precipitate. They precipitate, right? So we've thickened the solution originally by denaturing the beta-lactoglobulins. But during the <coughs> incubation, we initiated the precipitation of the casein proteins. The caseins are gonna form the gel network that holds the structure of the yogurt the denatured beta-lactoglobulins are gonna hold on to any free moisture to try and prevent synergesis. Does that make sense? That's why we did two different parts. We wanted to have that beta-lactoglobulin there to hold on to moisture so we didn't end up with that serum rising to the top of our finished yogurt in the container. Does the addition of strawberries have any impact on the proteins? Will it change the pH of the product? It certainly can. And that's something it doesn't say. It just says we've got 90% by weight strawberries, 10% sucrose, so they're sweetened strawberries, and they're added at a rate of 5% strawberries to 95% yogurt. But what happens to the final pH? It doesn't tell you that. But you should consider what that might be because strawberries tend to be fairly acidic, right? So you, you, you're missing a data point to be able to make a a complete um, discussion about what might have happened to the proteins because the strawberries do change the pH and they fill some space, right? If you've got a space that has strawberries in it, is that going to be space where you can have the same gel network that was forming with the casein interaction when it precipitated? No. So have I given you enough information to now answer the questions that were associated with number one? Can you tell me what's happening to each protein fraction 
during each of the process steps. Yes. One would hope so. That's the goal. So the next question was, what's the potential contribution of the protein fractions to the final body and texture? So what's the potential contribution of the serum proteins to the finished body and texture? I guess one of the things you said before was um, how beta-lactoglobulin can be used to reduce synteresis. That's very much one of them. And another one you also mentioned, depending on our final pH, if we start to associate those beta-lactoglobulins into not just monomers, but dimers, or perhaps even depending on our final pH octomers, they'll add some fat mimetic textural difference. It'll seem like there's more fat in this product than there actually is. Is that now, what is the casein doing for us? The casein is the primary gel matrix structure in this yogurt. When we got the pH low enough to initiate precipitation, it created the gel. If that didn't happen, your yogurt would still be liquid, which is okay if you want drinkable yogurt, but that's not, I believe, what we're looking for here. So the, the next question in the scenario asks, are there any of the steps that were taken that might not be necessary? I want you to start thinking like a process improvement person. Why are we doing these things? What's the result of them? If I didn't do them, would I still get a result similar to it, but perhaps with less cost? Could you not puree it with strawberries and sell it as um, a different style of yogurt? You could just use um, plain yogurt. You could blend this with other flavors. Now, depending on your other flavors, they may have a different pH impact. Perhaps you don't go to the same finished pH when you add a different fruit prep to end up at the same endpoint. Do we necessarily need that 188 for six minute hold. Is six minutes an arbitrary number? Could it be four and we still get the, the result we want? Could we go to two minutes, but take the temperature up to 192 and get the same impact? Those are the types of things we need to ask ourselves. If we went to 194, 
we would get to the point where the alpha lactalbumins also were consistently being denatured. Would that be enough to shorten our time frame down by three or four minutes and still get the same impact? We need to consider all of those possibilities. Anything else we may change? Do we have to protein fortify or do we have to solids fortify? Could we put some other substance in there that would bind water instead of having to denature the beta-lactoglobulin? I would say yes, but I'm not sure what, it, what that additive would be. It is yes, and it would typically be something along the lines of uh, carrageenan, pectin. Pectin would be an excellent choice um, at a relatively low level. You could add pectin, a high methoxyl pectin, which would gel based on the calcium content. You wouldn't have to add any of this additional solids fortification. You'd get essentially the same texture, possibly better synergesis prevention, but you would have a yogurt that you could not market as having the same quantity of protein per serving. So you have to look at what the marketing is behind this product. Are we trying to increase protein per serving or are we trying to get a stiffer texture all of those things can be adjusted if we're if we know what we're really trying to get done. So I sort of just answered part of the next question. Can a similar product be made using different process protocols? Yes. If you are not looking for additional protein from a nutritional standpoint, you can put other materials in there at lower rates that will accomplish the same end goal for texture. But if you're looking for a clean label and you don't want to put other things on there that people can't pronounce, then we go with solids fortification, which may cost us slightly more in making the product, but we'll change our end market because we have a different label. Um, Howard, I kind of have a question along those lines too. Yes. Um, how would it affect our final product if we choose to, you know, put the, our strawberries, and if we were making like a cup set and we put our strawberries in at the bottom of the cup and then we just have our customer mix it in. So we, you would probably make a different base formula for the quote white mix, the, the simply the cultured dairy portion. 
because when you have to account for the fact you're going to break the gel to stir the strawberries in and then have it re-knit and stay stable in the cup, that's going to require different characteristics than simply having the strawberries at the bottom and putting a fermented milk on top of it that you're gonna let the customer stir in. The textures are gonna be substantially different. We already answered the question, is there sufficient information on the puree? Probably not. We don't know enough about the pH of that puree, what the acid might actually be. I mean, yes, it's pH, but would it make a difference if it's phosphoric acid versus malic acid versus some other organic acid present? And that answer is yes, because different acids even at the same pH present different from a flavor profile standpoint. So we, we need to think about that also. The last question related to this particular scenario was, what if I were to add kosher gelatin to the mixture instead? What do you think would happen? Would it gel up faster, more consistently? It, it could gel faster, more consistently. It's likely to be more cuttable. I mean, sometimes yogurt is sort of, uh, if you put the spoon through there, it's not a clean separation. It sort of drags and catches on your spoon. But if it has a high gelatin content, it's very clean cut nice uh, clear separation. Is that a characteristic that you're looking for, right? I said here, kosher bovine gelatin. What if I went in with porcine gelatin? Would that become an issue? What is porcine gelatin? That's pig, isn't it? That's correct. Why would that maybe be an issue? Kosher and, yeah. sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, if it has pork in it at all, it would be a kosher product, therefore limiting your market range. Right, so you could use kosher bovine gelatin but if you veered off of that to another source of gelatin, you've taken out not only your kosher market, but your halal market. And depending on where you are in the country, that may be a, f a fairly substantial uh, share of your marketing. So you have to be careful. If you're using something for a specific characteristic, can I use that based on other dietary laws? So that's the, the basic scenario of how 
I would go about breaking down one of these processes, we're looking at then, you know, each step from the, the ingredient to start with, the process, another ingredient. When I ask you an exam question about what's happening, this is probably gonna be about 25 to 30% of the exam are take a scenario and break it back apart and tell me about what's happening to the proteins. To me, that's where it actually makes the most sense because if you're in quality, if you're in production, you're in engineering and you're looking at issues with the final product, yes, it's nice to know the chemistry, but you have to be able to relate to the product as to what's happening, you know. So the pH changed or I was off from my target. Well, what's the implication of that? So that's why I want us to become fairly comfortable with being able to do this. Does anyone want to take a stab at starting scenario two? I don't think we'll get done with it today, but we can start it. That would be the Wednesday people if they've read it already. Otherwise, anybody can take a stab at scenario two. Um, I'm not being correct here, but isn't the 50 to 50 case in this serum, that's not like naturally occurring, right? You'd that is correct. Alter, you'd have to, so you'd have to alter that in some way, maybe by like converting one to the other or like somehow like separating your casing in your serum and then adding it back into the right percentages or. That is the most likely way is to, to obtain a casing and obtain a serum protein in some fashion, say you get the casein, you, you acid precipitated the casein from the milk and have a purified casein, and then you obtain the serum proteins collecting way off of cheese vat. Now you've got two separate sources. You can then use those to blend together to obtain your 50-50 because your original ratio would be 80-20 casein to whey if you're just in milk. You could start with milk and then add additional whey protein to it until you got up to the 50-50. That's one of the ways to get there. That's, that's a starting point. Anything else you can think of? What were you saying about the 80-20? So in normal milk, the proteins that are present, four out of five of them, or 80%, are caseins. 20% are serum proteins. That's the normal coming from the lactating animal. Okay. So anytime you want a ratio different than that, you're gonna to have to figure out how do I add something, do I subtract something to get to that 
because the 80-20 is your starting point. Unless you're doing a purified casein, that's 100% casein, zero protein. Or if you're doing something like a whey protein isolate, it's 100% serum proteins, 0% casein. So how could we get to this protein ratio? Like um, Sydney was saying, can you um, filtrate them? Yep, you, you can do that. What else might you want to try and do? Could we precipitate them out or would that denature them uh, beyond serviceable use? It, if you acid precipitate the caseins out, they would not really change because they're essentially denatured to begin with. The serum proteins, the best way to obtain them is to recover the whey from cheese manufacture where that split has already taken place. The issue there would be the pasteurization temperature of the milk going into the cheese vat. Have I denatured any of those serum proteins such that they're gonna stay in the cheese or are they gonna end up in the whey? What do you think? How, how can we get to 50-50? So the serum could be in the cheese or can be in the whey? You, you could end up with a little bit of serum protein entrapped in basically the casein matrix if you denatured it during pasteurizing the milk before you put it in the cheese vat. But if you had not denatured the serum proteins during pasteurizing, they should all be removed in the whey fraction and not remain in the cheese curd. So you could do a low pasteurization to get your serum protein in the whey? Correct. So I need to get a 50-50 ratio, casein to serum. And I also need a final product that has 70% total protein. If you look back up in scenario one, non-fat dry milk, how much protein was in it? 36%. 36%. So we're essentially looking for a product that has twice as much protein 
as non-fat dry milk, but instead of having it in an 80-20 casein to serum ratio like there is in non-fat, we want it a 50-50. Are we trying to make some type of like, like a protein, like a protein powder thing? That's essentially what you're going to end up with. Yep, something that you could market as a fortifier for nutrition beverages or something to that nature. Um, well, couldn't so like some of the, looking at the questions, some of the differences that maybe we could use um, would just be the different. There's different characteristics of casein and protein. Like they have like different like isoelectric points and different um, like heat levels that you can kind of work with them at. So we can we can use those things to fractionate out and get the casein. We can use that to get the serum. When you're making a product like this, there's two ways to do it. You can get a casein stream as a liquid and a serum stream is a liquid, and then try and calculate your ratios and blend them together, and then dry the whole thing. Or you can dry the casein stream and dry the serum stream and dry blend them together at the correct protein ratio. That's actually the easier way to get there. The biggest challenge is to get up to that 70% total protein and not have the lactose and minerals at a high level in this product. If you were to just use whey protein concentrate, coming the, the standard product that's made coming off a of cheese vat, it's gonna have 34% protein and about 55% lactose. That's not gonna get us where we need to go. We'll have to separate that sugar off. Right, we have to pull off more of the lactose. So we'd need to go for something at least a WPC 80, added maybe to non-fat. Doing that as a dry blend, you could probably get here. Whey protein isolate for sure, add it to non-fat, you could do it. The other choices would be membrane filtration, uh, making like a milk protein concentrate and then added, adding a whey protein isolate to it. And then co -dry, after you co-blended those, dry them down. But remembering at each and every one of those steps, we may or may not be altering the characteristics of the protein. How much would dry blending affect the actual structure of the protein with, with the shear going on of the uh, blades? Basically, the when you dry blend, you most often will do it in what's called a PK blender or a big, it looks like a big Y. It's got two sides to it and then a funnel on the bottom and it's just tumbling. Or you'll use a ribbon blender and the speed in a ribbon blender is relatively slow. You're looking at 15 or 20 RPM. 
So it's it's not excessive shear. It's just very slowly turning it over. You can put a thousand, two thousand pounds in there at a time, and let it run for twenty minutes. It so gets a nice slow blend. It's not going to input a lot of heat because it's slow. It's not going to impart a lot of shear or tear particles down. That's one of the things you're trying to control. It, so it's if, more of a, um, a folding as opposed to a, a whisking. Yes. And, and that would be an important consideration in how you choose to blend is what mechanically does the blending action do to impart heat and or shear to my finished product? All these things to consider. What other thoughts do you have about how we might be able to make a product like number two? Okay, think about it over the weekend. Bring your final thoughts on scenario two back. We'll do the same thing on Monday and we'll complete scenario three. Okay, sound good? And you can watch each other talk or be a black square, whatever you choose. Uh, but this has been recorded, so you should be able to see how we work through the process interactions. All right, that's it for today. Have a good weekend, and we'll see most of you back on these screens on Monday. Sydney. Is plant management on Zoom today, or is it in class? In class. Okay, I will see you then. Okay. Dr. Bonneman? Yes. Did you get my email that I sent late last night? Yep, got a paper. And the other one? Uh, I don't know. I saw the one that had a paper. I'll have to see. Okay. 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 Thank you. Yep.